0: Towns across Western Europe are filled with excited and bewildered whispers. News of Alboin's astounding victories are spreading far and wide, playing vividly in the imaginations of all who hear them. In the lands of the Gebets tribe, there is an uproar. In Francia, the four ruling sons of the late King Clovis express shock and dismay at the news. A Germanic army, and a heathen one at that, daring to challenge the political order in Europe and muster such a great military strength? The impact of Alboin's victory over the Gepitz tribe is felt for hundreds of miles. In Pannonia, Alboin, the fierce warrior king, is preparing for the greatest challenge and ambition of his lifetime. Italia, the eternal city. All that is rich and abundant lies in the sacred cradle of Europe, and very soon it will be his for the taking. A tidal wave of militarism and excitement sweeps over the region of Pannonia spurring everyone to act in the greatest event of their day. In the cities, the streets are congested with many tens and hundreds of men, clutching their weapons, making their way to muster points to await commands from their mighty king. The women and children look on with a mixture of awe and despair. Those who are not able to join the migration lament the loss of a fantastic opportunity. Blacksmiths in every district are inundated with demands for spears, chainmail coats and skirts, and bows. Wooden carts, heaped high with food, clothes, and precious possessions, trundle along the dirty paths to the city gates, where a great swarm of people will set out for the 6th century equivalent of the Promised Land. There is a great cultural diversity here. The fields face a horde of Hunnic Avars who take the place of the departing Lombards to hold their territory in safekeeping lest the invasion of Italy fails. From the north, the Saxons have come to Alboin's aid with 20,000 men, all fiercely motivated for the expedition. It is 568. On Easter Monday, the great invasion began. Following steadfast behind their king, the Lombards approached the Alps, the same mountain range the great Carthaginian general Hannibal crossed many centuries before. But this time, there is not a determined, unrelenting Roman army to fight them off. Italy is a weakened country, filled with the wreckage left by the Gothic War. There will be no major opposition, and Alboin knows it, Italy is practically already his. At the summit of the king's mountain, Alboin invites his people to gaze upon the fertile lands of Italy, pockmarked with advanced settlements and fortified towns, albeit significantly damaged. All that stands between the Lombards and their promised land is a narrow pass between the towering mountains. There is not a moment to lose. Alboin first marched his emboldened and die-hard army into the former Roman province of Venezia, facing little resistance as he trod foot on the Italian peninsula. Fast to mount the legendary Roman roads, he led his coalition in an immediate and tireless sweep through the district, seizing control of all the major cities except Padua, Monsilicis, and Mantua. Placing his nephew Gisulf as Duke of Venetia, Alboin readied his army for its next speedy coordination Liguria. Only a few months before, the province of Liguria had been ravaged by a terrible plague, which forced the citizens to remain barred up behind their doors. This disease was probably the bubonic plague, caused by the same bacterium which would come to wipe out a third of Europe's population in the mid-14th century. Swelling of the glands, an unbearable fever, and sweating was endured by all of its victims, until most of them met their death on the third day. Those who survived the third day might have a chance of living. The disease in Liguria significantly broke the morale of the Byzantine Ostrogothic population and ensured that a coherent counterattack was impossible. Any resistance to the invasion was posed by local levies in the towns of northern Italy, led by noblemen in their petty attempts to defend their land from these foreign invaders. Alboin had the element of surprise on his side, and in the spirit of divide and conquer, stormed his army across the rolling hills of the countryside, eliminating any opposition and capturing all the cities. Horrified at the quick-acting Lombard army, the Archbishop Honoratus promptly fled to Genoa with treasures of his church. But not everyone was so fast to react. At the Plavas River in northern Italy, Alboin met with the bishop of the church at Tarvisio, Felix. In all his generosity, Albuen allowed Felix to keep the property of his church, and, probably for propaganda reasons, Albuen had a document signed and sealed to make it legally binding. He needed all the help he could get as his army encroached on provinces further south. Italia may have been in a horrible condition, but the Christian church was incredibly prominent, already harboring immense wealth in churches and monasteries. Sacking and looting these sites one by one, the Lombard soldiers loaded themselves with silver, gold, and precious relics to the alarm of the bishops. Alboin had all the cards in his hands and all the silver pennies in his pockets. The eyes of the Lombard king and his generals were quick to jump to increasingly wealthy and significant targets. And as they rejoiced in their great successes and planned their subsequent steps, the perfect next sight came to their attention. The town of Pavia, a prominent settlement heaped with Christian treasures, and a population that had a great sway over power politics, had been around since pre-Roman times. Defended by various formidable fortifications with high walls and a strong garrison, it was the ideal target to tease the true might of the Lombard army. Slowly, Alboin's men approached the city, throwing a lasso around it and making it ready for what would become a fantastic siege. Doubtless, the Lombard king rubbed his hands together in glee as he commanded his generals to move in on the exceptional city of Pavia. It was time.